0: Welcome to The Human Advantage, a podcast from the Centre for Army Leadership, which explores the more personal and tactical applications of leadership through the lived experience of others. In each episode, we meet a leader who's been there and explore their successes and challenges in situations ranging from major combat operations to handling the disbandment of a regiment. We explore what they've learned about leadership to help our junior leaders prepare for success on operations today and in the future. I'm your host, Ash Bardwaj. I'm a journalist and broadcaster, but also a captain in the British Army Reserve serving with the rifles. In this episode, we meet someone who decided before their 15th birthday that they wanted to join the Army who commissioned just a month before 9-11.
1: I've always seen my military career as a vocation, and I think probably most of those that joined the Army when I did, back in the Dark Ages almost now, but um, we saw it as a vocation. Now, I don't know if the young men and women of our organisation still see it in that
0: same way or not. Colonel Hannah Stoy commissioned into the Royal Corps of Signals in 2001. She eventually went on to command 30 Signal Regiment and the Queen's Gurkha Signals. Her current role is as Deputy Assistant Chief of Staff of Personnel in Headquarters Field Army where she remains passionate about her family-first approach to leadership.
1: I see you but I don't just see you as a private or signaller or a junior NCO or a a captain or whatever your rank is, I see you and beyond you, I see that there's more to you than just the person stood in uniform.
0: She is also the co-chair of the Army Service Women's Network. I started by asking Colonel Hannah about leaving Sandhurst to go to Germany. I wrongly assumed that she had done her skill-to-arms course before she had left, and after realising that she hadn't, I asked if she was nervous at the prospect.
1: I can't remember is the honest answer, but I imagine (laughs) I did feel nervous. But I think as well, when you leave Sandhurst, you've spent such a long time training that the opportunity to get in front of real-life soldiers and start to practice and deliver what you're joining the army to do is so amazing that that you're also caught in the moment.
0: Were there any challenges that you hadn't expected in that transition and how did you deal with them?
1: So the role of the troop I took over was an armoured troop so that in itself was a different world and was quite a physical job but I was very lucky with the team I had around me both my immediate team as a troop commander and also the squadron commander and his team so he made it his job and purpose to ensure that we were as qualified as possible so the first thing I did was spend a significant amount of time away from my troop going around the different departments and this wasn't just sitting watching what people were doing but if I went into the Remi detachment I was there doing oil changes track bashes so changing the track on a tank and and really getting my hands dirty and the other thing, that they got me to do was qualify for my H license. So I was qualified to drive and command the armored vehicles. And that then gave me a little bit of, of experience and credibility with the soldiers for what otherwise was a very fresh-faced, newly trained subaltern.
0: So by understanding the roles of what the subordinates did, it made it easy for you to to command and and also gain their respect. Is that...
1: Yes, absolutely. And, and you know part of my responsibility, for example, as a troop commander was to know what state the troop were in, both the people and the equipment. And therefore, you're pretty flawed if the first thing you do is look at something and you have no idea what it is and how it operates. Now, I don't profess to be any kind of deep subject matter expert, but it enabled you to get through those early days with some credibility. And of course, you were also surrounded by subject matter experts. So it was knowing when to call on them to provide you either assistance or in, indeed additional training.
0: By the time you got to subunit command, and so that's commanding a squadron of signalers, I presume there's lots and lots of people within the unit that do jobs that you've not been trained in. So it's quite different to the infantry or the gunners, where you usually have done elements of that job. Does that create particular challenges in command?
1: Yes. So I was really lucky in that I returned to the same squadron that I started life on and that was one of my goals very early on I loved it so much I knew I wanted to get back there if I had the opportunity whilst I was a squadron commander I think you still have extraordinary contact with people and the ability to get out and know your people and know what it is they do but again it is about using subject matter experts and for me as well, it's about building those human relationships. So it's more than just their professional ability, but it's it's setting the conditions so that they can have those conversations with you that might not otherwise happen, ensure that you're approachable. And I think I had a great time troop commanding, and so I had a real sense in my own mind of what I might want to achieve with the squadron whilst we were in that relationship of me being a squadron commander. That was a great opportunity to, to get out there, and it was a lot of fun, and I had a really really fun team around me.
0: What kind of work were you doing at that time? Were you going on operations? And it sounds like maintaining a sense of cohesion and morale within the unit was something that was important. Did you manage that through fun? And were there specific examples that you did to make that happen?
1: There's that sort of age old saying, work hard and play hard. And I think that's definitely what we did. And and living and uh, working in Germany at that moment in both my career and and in the sort of armies world was, was a lot of fun. Germany was a great place to serve. A lot of our people served accompanied out there. The families were looked after well. The packages were really very good. So there was always a commitment and contract with them that we did work very hard. We supported the brigade uh, commander and their staff and the training, it was often very hard and very testing. But there was a real sense of purpose. We had a clear identity. And I think because of the characters that we were supporting as well, there was something about us all wanting to lean in to be as successful as possible as well. It was definitely a a team effort and it was, yeah, very happy memories.
0: And how did you maintain that identity on a daily basis? It's the kind of concept that you hear, maintaining identity. What kind of activities did you set up? What kind of conversations did you have to ensure that you had that cohesion and identity?
1: There's a real opportunity for any part of the organisation that trains together because I think you see warts and all on one another. And if it's good training and testing training, then you start to push people and their characters into some uncomfortable places. And I think that's a positive. It's also then about understanding how you come out of that and have downtime and use other opportunities so we did adventurous training we played sport together we almost entirely trained as a squadron when we did our pt because we were quite small in size and so it was just doing the other things that mattered and we lived on a camp that was quite small it had its own cookhouse we could have families weekends And then there was also a balance that not everybody did have their family there. So it was trying to create the time and space for them to get back to the UK at the right opportunities if that's where their families were or or overseas elsewhere in order to to go and see them. So it wasn't all about the married soldiers.
0: So understanding the personal demands of your soldiers helped you frame a way to encourage them to try and achieve more because you you were giving them back. It wasn't just all all take from what, what you wanted from them.
1: Yes. And I think I think if you've got a clear reason and purpose for doing things, then people lean into those moments much more. Whereas I think if, if soldiers think you're just doing something for the sake of it, then understandably, they feel less inclined to support it. So I think communicating that with them, and when you're at squadron command level, you know, it's normally a face-to-face conversation, then that lands really well. I also think, and I don't think this is unique to the signals at all, and I had a, a, several other cat badges in squadron command, but our soldiers are very intelligent and so treat them as they're intelligent and, and have those conversations uh, and listen to them on the shop floor and understand what the feeling is at their level.
0: Within that, you've, you've talked about this giving space and trust to subject matter experts to advise you on things. And I presume that encourages an element of, of challenge culture within the squadron. In your experience, has there ever been tensions in maintaining structure and discipline and encouraging challenge culture?
1: Yeah so I think most leaders in in the army would hope that they set the conditions for a challenge culture. It's very difficult to actually measure whether you have. I guess if if you've got people knocking your door down every day trying to speak to you that might be one of them but I think it's also accepting that people will approach and talk to you in different situations in different scenarios so you've got to make yourself available in different scenarios. So if you're a An officer or a soldier who sits in your office all day every day then you're only ever going to be accessible to certain people either via electronic means or somebody coming into whatever the spaces you're working in. If you can get out and about more and whether that's visiting your people where they're working and in their working environments whether it's in their social environments but just being present I think you then start to offer other opportunities of being available. Now, I I wouldn't say that I necessarily did it any better or worse than anyone else, and we have various formal feedback mechanisms which work to varying degrees. But I think I'm also that person that, if I ask for feedback from 100 people and get 99 really positive bits of feedback and then one really bad, I will focus in solely on the bad feedback. And if anything, I take it as a personal failing if I've really disrupted someone's life to the, to the point where they haven't been happy on my watch, then I think I've, I've probably failed in some way. I think also you can have your subject matter expert input all the time, but for every commander at any level, and that's not just officers, that's soldier ranks as well, there are certain decisions that are yours to make and only yours to make. And the buck stops with you in some areas. And sometimes you will have to go against the popular vote because it's the right thing to do. And it's trusting your experience, it's trusting your instinct, trusting your common sense and military judgment, and knowing that in most of those decisions, if you're making the right decisions, even though they may not be shared with others, your team will stay with you and help deliver that output.
0: Do you have an example from your career of that happening and how you've managed that relationship?
1: So I'll give you an ex- uh, one from when I was a squadron commander. So we were on exercise. It was a deliberately challenging and tough exercise. We were working our people very hard. They were working very long hours uh, and it was a full squadron exercise. And just for context, the squadron that I commanded was an independent squadron. So we weren't sat in a regimental chain of command. So we were completely independent and therefore I was the decision maker unless we were on exercise with the brigade. And in this particular example, we'd been out training and I decided to check all the driver's hours cards. And so those are cards that effectively record how much driving, sleep and rest your people have had. And when I checked them and I checked every single person's, I I didn't recognize what I saw on them. And so it triggered a sort of thought that either there was part of this exercise that I was completely unsighted on and therefore... I needed to understand why people were not getting the rest and sleep that they needed and were mandated to have. Or our people didn't understand how to fill in the driver's hours cards or something in between. So I signed every single soldier's driver's hours card. And instead of stopping the exercise at that point, I took the decision to allow them to move to the next location because I knew, because I knew what the um, main events list was for the exercise, that they were then going to have a chance to rest for sort of 36 hours and we weren't going to be moving. They had to move, I think it was about two kilometers up a range road to their next location. And typically during that move, a soldier who was driving fell asleep at the wheel of their vehicle, unfortunately had a very minor, but nevertheless had a road traffic accident and they drove into the, to the vehicle in front of them. So we dealt with the initial fallout clearly, which was to make sure that the individuals involved were okay and to recover the vehicles and things. And, and everybody I'm very pleased and relieved to say was okay. But of course, I had only minutes earlier signed this card to say I was aware of what their sleep situation was and everything else. And I remember there was a very sort of immediate response and reaction from some of my team, which was like, oh, boss, you're really in trouble now because you've signed to say you've done it and know that they're doing this. And look, it's all gone wrong. Uh, And I don't think it was a response that anyone was sort of suggesting they were going to throw me under the bus. But there was certainly a real sort of buzz about, crikey, the boss has messed up. And there were varying degrees outside of our squadron, so some of the supporting staff in in brigade and division who had different responses as well. Some, I think, were gunning for me and then wanted my blood because I'd done something wrong at the most superficial level, and others wanted to know more about the circumstances. So to cut a long story short, I did end up having an interview with the brigade commander, and the way that the brigade commander approached it was that they asked for my sort of take on what had happened. And I was very honest and I said, you know, I took a command decision at that moment in time in order to continue the training, but also to keep it realistic and to then get additional training in place when we got to the new location that we would move. And most importantly, and I think this was possibly what struck me the most, I said, and I would do the same thing again now, even though I know it went wrong on that occasion, because I trusted that my decision-making was actually right. I had had the right input from people And I thought it was the right thing to do. It was a really difficult situation. And I remember having a few sleepless nights thinking, you know, it was going to be career ending and everything else. But I also, you know, this was no point to sort of telling lies. I was just completely honest with the situation. And, you know, it didn't impact me and it, it finished okay.
0: So there's the relationship there with your commander, with the brigadier. How did that affect your relationship with the team immediately afterwards? And did you have to do any specific work? within the within squadron?
1: Once the process had, had completed, we talked about it. You know, one of the things I wanted to make sure I hadn't missed was any obvious red flags or moments where someone might've tried to communicate something with me and I either consciously or subconsciously ignored them or anything else like that. And I think for me, it was a really important lesson early on that, you know, we work with humans and we, we all make informed decisions and we all have varying degrees of experience and, I don't think I missed anything and nobody came to me afterwards and said, you know, I tried to tell you boss, but but I think it was a helpful minor event in that respect with, you know, and I'm very, very glad nobody got seriously injured. But the flip side is it, it did also help my, dis- shape my decision making going forward.
0: In in what way?
1: So I think two ways. One was I realized that the chain of command would often have your back in a way that you might not naturally have expected them to. So The brigade commander at the time trusted my view, opinion and decision making. And as I was on the ground making that decision, I'm very grateful that they took that choice. And I think also it demonstrated to my team that we all can make mistakes and that it's okay to make a mistake and that it's not always, you know, or very seldom going to be career ending. And we are probably better for it. You know, if you have seamless hostings, if you have seamless careers, then something's probably not right. So I I think I was better for it.
0: The next time you had command was when you became a regimental commander. Yes. And that really is the bridge between junior command and senior command. Is that how you view that point in your career?
1: Completely. I try and think back and I can't remember what my view of being a commanding officer was when I was a very junior officer and leaving Santas. In fact, I don't think it was really something we thought about. But as you get closer to it, you know, I think the first consideration is, and, and it's very different wherever you're serving because some parts of our organization grow up in a single cat badge and for them, the pinnacle is to command that regimental battalion. In the signals and in some of the other corps, we're very fortunate we have a broader opportunity of different units to command. But 30 Signal Regiment and being commander of the Queen's Gurkha Signals was abs- absolutely, for me, the one I would really sort of dreamt of. And so I felt very, very lucky to get it. But yes, the step between squadron command and regimental command is huge.
0: And I guess this is the first time when you're in command where you don't know everybody under your command. How did that level of working with, working with the junior leaders within your regiment play out when you took over that job? What were the things you were thinking about?
1: Gosh, there were lots of factors at play. So the first thing is, as I, I was returning to work having had my second child. So I'd had seven months maternity leave and then I was literally coming straight into commander regiment. So that that in itself was a very daunting prospect and challenge. I was going to a unit that I didn't know particularly well and I knew one or two people in the unit, but beyond that, everybody was was a stranger effectively. But I think also, you know, when you take over regimental command, it's not a standing start. You're taking over something that's already delivering, and in the case of 30 Signal Regiment and the Queen's Signals, already delivering extraordinary outputs. 30 Signal Regiment was an operationally focused unit. It's Defence's only high readiness signals regiment, or it was at the time. So therefore, I adopted the view that it wasn't my regiment for a period of time, which turned out to be two and a half years I was the caretaker. I was, you know, at the helm and and had an extraordinary opportunity. But I had to be very careful not to come in with sort of Stoy's 600 million great ideas that I was going to implement over a two and a half year period.
0: And this is something you often hear from junior leaders is when a new CEO or a new person commander comes in having lots of big ideas and bringing in too much change. And was that something you were aware of with this not bringing in? story 600 ideas.
1: Yeah, I think I think you just need to be aware of the fact that actually your soldiers are often the people that are there the longest. And if, if they've been there for any period of time, what they see is lots of different commanding officers and indeed several different squadron commanders or company commanders. And they, I think, appreciate you recognising that keeping the ship steady, for want of a better word, is not a bad position. And of course, you're going to bring your own unique styles and priorities and things like that but it's also about just stopping and looking around and seeing what it is that you're taking command of before you start to sort of put your own character and style on it and i think that's really important
0: family was one of your key pillars when you took over regiment of command why does that matter And, and did you take anything that you'd learned in your previous experiences in command to apply to that
1: yeah so as you've said ash It's a frustrating moment taking over command of an organization that you're unlikely to ever know the name of everybody in it, let alone their spouses, children, partners, and everybody else. And for me, yeah, family first was one of my priorities. And what I meant by that was twofold. The first one is is that all of us come with some sort of support structure and network in place, whether you're married, single, got a partner whatever your circumstances it might be friends it might be family and I think I recognize that we ask a lot of our people in the military and we ask them regularly to go above and beyond and I think to do that successfully you have to sort of secure those wider support structures so I wanted people to know that whatever the circumstance if they had life events going on that might be weddings funerals children's parents evenings plays anything like that that actually from my perspective they had permission they were never asking for permission to go and do these things this was about just making sure they'd told their chain of command in enough time so that we could cover for them and that if we secured those areas and supported them in them that when we did ask them to go and above and beyond actually people would lean into that and i you know i was my husband is also serving we had two very young children we lived on camp and so they could see us warts and all weekends during the days. My other half, he he was weekly commuting, but would get back as often as he could to be supportive. But we also had to live in Nanny for a significant proportion of, of command as well, in order to do it. And I I just wanted that all to be, you know, it's part of building that relationship of trust. That, you know, I see you, but I don't just see you as a private or signaler, or a junior NCO or a, or a captain or, or whatever your rank is I see you and beyond you I see that there's more to you than just the person stood in uniform.
0: And that creates a more uh, wholesome might not be the right word but it creates a more properly inclusive environment within a regiment.
1: Yeah and I, I've always seen my military career as a vocation and I think probably most of those that joined the Army when I did, back in the dark ages almost now, but um, we saw it as a vocation. Now, I don't know if the young men and women of our organization still see it in that same way or not, but I think real life happens. And if you don't recognize that, and you adopt a bullish approach of, you know, just get your head down and ignore all of that, then at some point it will catch you out.
0: You're now the co-chair of the Army Service Women's Network. Removing barriers seems to have been something that you've implemented in your command, so enabling family activities to take place so that your soldiers feel more able to then carry on and do the work when it's asked of them. How has removing barriers affected your your career and is it something that you encountered and then you've chosen to try and remove it for others?
1: I definitely didn't have a plan when I joined the army. I decided I wanted to be in the army from a very young age. I was was 14 and a half when I sort of made that decision, which was probably quite unusual for a, a female at that time. And I don't think I ever saw my gender as a blocker, but I do think I had accepted that I was joining a man's army. So I think that's where the sort of distinction was when I first joined. And I adopted an approach at that point, which was I believed as long as I was as good as or potentially better than my male counterparts, then I might get seen on a sort of similar setting and things and, and, and sort of be recognized for that. I think I was very lucky as well. I think I met some incredible people early on in my career, both officers and soldiers. I think they backed and believed in me, which gave me greater confidence to do what I what I did sort of in the earlier years. At this stage now and as as co-chair of the Army Service Women's Network and one of the reasons I took it on was the recognition that just because I had actually a relatively, I'm not going to say easy, I don't think it was an easy earlier career but I just didn't experience some of the bad behaviour that you hear about from others but I realised that wasn't everyone's experience and I wanted to use hopefully um, my rank, hopefully my credibility and the network of people that i had built relationships with to start to change that narrative but it was mo- it's more than that and i think what we've seen recently and this is the really i think exciting bit is that some issues have been raised as issues that affect service women but of course the reality is is they're far broader than that so single parents childcare parenting more widely these aren't female issues, these affect men as well. We have male soldiers who are single parents. So I think we've widened the conversation beyond just service women. And I think the net gain for the organization and our people is really significant.
0: I think that's a really good point. Whenever I've learned about various networks within the army, what I have found that they always do really well is they don't just look after the people within that network In, in engaging. Solves other problems that affects everybody within the army and makes the army a place that works better for for everybody. Are there are there any specific challenges when you look back to command when you were commanding the regiment? Were there any particular experiences that were were challenging for you in leadership, and how did you deal with them?
1: Uh, the answer is lots, and I think they probably happened daily. But if I if I just look back and and reflect on a couple, so whilst I was in command, three soldiers died during my command tenure. The first one died during the first Christmas leave. So I took over in the summer and and this soldier died as a result of a road traffic incident. They were overseas. It was one of my Gurkhas. That was very strange in some respects because it was, there was geography, there was distance between us and what had happened. Communications back and forth weren't easy. And I didn't really know the individual desperately well either. So although it felt very sad and and really difficult, there were lots of things that sort of put distance and things between us. He was called Singhala Rupesh. We gave him a send-off in the unit. And then when I had the privilege of visiting Nepal, amazingly, I got to go and meet his family, his father, his three sisters. We presented them some some gifts. His numri, so his, his fellow Gurkhas across the whole of the brigade of Gurkhas had raised an extraordinary amount of money for the family. The second one, and I haven't really sort of spoken about it, but COVID happened about the halfway point of my command. One of my junior NCOs was taken very ill, very quickly. He was diagnosed with cancer and he died two weeks after his diagnosis. And for the first week, he didn't want people to know. He was struggling to know how to tell his wife. His children were so young that had he told them, they wouldn't have known what it was. And he didn't want his professional colleagues knowing either because I don't think any of us, including him, realised it was going to be such a quick illness and death. And a week into it, I think we realized how severe the situation was. And I remember going to bed in the second weekend, which was the end of his second week, and just commenting to my husband that I just didn't think he was going to to be with us very long. And sure enough, he died on the Saturday night. He was in hospital. My welfare officer came to tell me face-to-face, which I was very grateful for. You know, apart from the fact that losing any soldier is, is horrific, I then had to tell his friends and I had to tell his colleagues and I had to tell the regiment. We had to do it in small numbers, as you can imagine, because of all the restrictions. When I first told the chain of command and they were the cohort I told first, I broke down. His children were a very similar age to mine. I couldn't imagine what they were going through. I just looked at the faces in the room of those I was telling and they were in shock. They had no idea what I was going to tell them. It was no less easy when I told his friends and when I did tell the regiment, I had just about got myself together and I was very aware that I'd broken down in front of people and I sort of suddenly thought, gosh, does that make me a weaker leader? Does that, you know, are they going to judge me on that? And of course, in fact, people had completely the opposite re- reaction and response. So we set to in, in, you know, looking after his wife and children. Uh, they were a Muslim family. He was a foreign and Commonwealth soldier. He actually went home to be buried, but um, we saw him off from the regiment. We... Spaced out the whole regiment to send him off. We were, all, you know, in our service dress and everything else. It was really tough. It was really tough. And uh, his name was Lance Corporal Jawara. I will never forget him or his family. And I feel very privileged that we could do something to hopefully ease the impact and burden on his family. Um, and then the final one. Gosh, very depressing, doesn't it? But the final one was was a. Uh, a staff sergeant who had been unwell for a very long time with cancer. So I had got to know her extremely well, far better than the, the previous two examples. And she was inspirational. She was someone that was not going to let cancer rule her life, and we had supported her in that. She'd gone and done some really tough career courses and everything else. And then right towards the very end of my tenure, I formally finished command in the sort of first couple of weeks of, of the January, but I knew she had had to go home and could no longer serve. And we supported her family. And uh, when I did my sort of final walk round, which again, all during COVID, so it was all very sort of dispersed and things, they had arranged for her to be there on a team's call. I had no idea she was gonna be there. And so I sort of saw her and spoke to her and everything else. But that was a very different experience because she almost died on her own grounds and conditions. And that was quite powerful for people to see and understand and I remain in touch with her family the regiment did an amazing job at looking after them again and those those are tough moments you know I don't think anything prepares you for death in any situation um, I haven't referred to it up until now but I have a very strong Christian faith and that for me also was absolutely part of my own sort of support through that period there are lots of other challenging days when your people do something that lets you down and you don't expect it and you have to deal with it they're never easy there's there's no enjoyment in disciplining or using administrative action against your people. I think, you know, anyone that thinks that's the case, that's not the case. But I think the other thing I would say is the challenge of expectations of leadership, both your own expectations and that of others. There's there's probably a bit of me that's pretty determined and thinks if I try hard enough and work hard enough, I can do anything. I'm realistic. I can't do everything at all. And I think the greatest challenge for me of regimental command was that of time, that there just was never enough time. And it didn't matter where my focus was, whether it was specifically something to do with delivering operations or dealing with issues or seeing people or indeed trying to balance the fact I was a mum and a wife and, and a daughter and all those other things. The reality was is there was never enough of it. And so the challenge of understanding how to use time to best effect, how to create strong, and effective relationships with your people at all levels was really important. So I used to do fireside chats on the picnic benches dotted around camp. And actually that was really powerful because it it wasn't that people had to turn up. I'd sit there for an hour. Some days I'd have one or two people come over and talk to me. Some of them would just stumble across me and go, oh, what are you doing boss? And they'd sit and have a chat. Other times a group would come because they had an issue or a, an agenda and they'd sit and they'd talk to me. And so I think as a, as a any commander at any level, junior NCO, you know, company commander, CO, regimental sergeant major, if you can create time for your people, the payback is huge. And, you know, technology is great and is an a, real, a real enabler, but you can do emails and you can write reports in the evenings. if you know. And that's when I wrote most of my reports in the dark hours when I knew my children were in bed and the phone wasn't going to go and an email wasn't going to ping. But I knew at 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock at night, I couldn't have conversations with people. And if anything, I'd reflect, I didn't do it enough. If I did anything differently again in command, I'd, I'd you know, protect more time to go and have those conversations.
0: So looking back on it, it feels to me that you do have a very specific leadership style. How would you characterize your style of leadership?
1: I think be authentic and put your people first. And they, in turn, will will pay you back tenfold.
0: Thank you. We're gonna finish with three quick questions. Oh, here we go. Um, <laughs> the first, how would you spend your perfect Sunday?
1: Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'd be with my family. We'd probably have a pyjama morning. Probably, at the moment, it's, it's building Lego and it's doing art and crafts and it's spending time in the garden. So it will normally have pancakes in there somewhere. And being present, I think, just being present.
0: Sounds lovely. Are there any films, books or podcasts that have taught you something about leadership?
1: Yes. One of my absolute favourites is Hidden Figures. And I think what it's taught me is about firstly to identify blockers and obstacles that might be stopping your people achieving their potential. And when you see them, just remove them. Because everybody has got a part to play in our organisation. And why wouldn't you want people to meet their full potential and give their best? So if you can be that bulldozer, be the bulldozer for the right reasons.
0: And finally, what would you tell Second Lieutenant Hannah Stoy, knowing what you know now?
1: Uh, I'd tell, I tell her several things, I think. The first one is, wow, you're in for an incredible ride. The second one would be, learn to say no in order to protect your own time and your own equity and things. And then the third one, just have fun.
0: I found my conversation with Colonel Hannah to be both frank and insightful. Her insight into the value of time and of how we can choose to spend it wisely in order to invest in relationships can create a culture of healthy communication between ranks. But it's something that I will apply in my personal life as well, thinking about how we can use that time in relationships. This was an episode of The Human Advantage, presented by me, Ash Bardwaj of Digital Dandy, and co-produced by Catherine Carr from Feast Collective on behalf of the Centre for Army Leadership. What you hear on each episode are the views of the participants and do not represent the position of the Centre for Army Leadership, the British Army, or the United Kingdom Government. Please rate and subscribe to The Human Advantage on your podcast app, where you can find more episodes. If you enjoyed the episode, do send it to any friends and colleagues that you think might appreciate it, and maybe even share it on social media. For more information about developing leadership, just search online for the Centre for Army Leadership. Thanks for listening.